Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages, as the Lord commanded. They, ran, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Tamara. Exactly kind of what my soul needed today was that kind of worship. Is that the one you want me to use? Okay. And Zachary, don't go far. I need you to kind of stick here with me. So some of you may know this. Some of you may not. This is... um, this is largely the creation of my friend, Zach Lucero. And, uh, and Zach, over the course of now seven plus months of pandemic, has been wearing two hats. One is the youth ministry hat, and the other is this huge sombrero-looking hat that has to do with, with keeping us online, literally so people can see, who would not have otherwise been able to see and hear, who haven't been able to hear. And uh, as, you might, as you might guess, that was, that's been burdensome. It's been heavy at times. And grateful for more and more people who are, who are coming alongside to help us. But the board thought it was the right thing to not only acknowledge that Zach has done this amazing work to get us from the beginning of the pandemic back in March to this point, but also to set us up for beyond. And in addition to acknowledging it, we, we wanted to say thank you in a real tangible way. And so, because we have... We have asked so much of Zach over the last several months. The church board and your staff thought it was the right thing to uh, give him a mini sabbatical. So he was going to be taking the month of October off. And in addition, uh, we have kind of gotten together and we wanted to give you a little bit of a, it's not a parting gift, it's sort of a, until you come back, okay? (laughs) Yeah. But uh, we're grateful for Zach's work and we're grateful for Natalie's support of Zach's work here. It would be entirely appropriate for us to respond now and just say thank you as only we can for all the work. Hang on, hang on, hang on. (laughs) Oh, no. Come on now. Nearly had a technical difficulty there. Thank you. All right. So Zach's going to be gone for the month of October, or as the young people like to call it, Rocktober. Do they still call it Rocktober? No, they don't. Okay. Well, I was almost certain that they still called it Rocktober. So he'll be back uh, the 1st of November, and uh, we've actually asked him to, you know, just kind of keep your distance. Be be away. Take the rest. And so I, I believe that's what he and Natalie will do for the month. So thanks again, Zach. So, um, what a week. Seems like 2020 offers us more and more evidence that God is napping. 
And not just in, in huge global national ways, but I met with people this week who wondered where their church has gone. Some said so because, like, man, I can't believe that we are subjecting people to damage. Heard from that voice this week, and I, I hear that, and I appreciate it. Also heard from folks who said, why are we taking so many precautions? It's not the church that I remember. I hear that too. Met with a dear friend this week who said, I think we can hold out job-wise until the end of 2021, and then I don't know what I'll do. Also, uh, we lost Sally Logan this week. We've been praying for Sally, Jason, for two years. And so we're grieving today with David, her husband, with Emily, Sally's daughter, and with Jeff, her son, and their families. Bad things happen. Bad things continue to happen. And we as Christians are, are faced with this really daunting decision as to how we will respond to the bad things that continue to happen. Just to lighten things up a little bit, I did find this, this uh, recorded video event. This is also a bad thing that is happening. Now keep your eyes, this is trying to beat the summer heat and have a little bit of fun. And then the unthinkable happens and there. <laughs> so what do you do when bad things happen that threaten to knock your teeth out? <laughs> what, do, what do we do? We have an example of one of the ways to respond to that in today's passage of Scripture. I, I need to kind of supply for us the backdrop again, though. Here, here's what has happened. Man, Passover has happened. That's a big deal. And, and in addition, Exodus has happened. That, that is also a big deal. God has done some amazingly huge things. I mean, it's a big deal to topple the Egyptian empire, to loosen their grip on the people of God and to make it possible for them to walk away, run away, and exist now on the other side of the Red Sea as free people. That's a big, big, big deal. But now they are in the wilderness. Does anybody else feel like we continue to be in the wilderness? This, this feels a lot like wilderness. I've, I've heard it said here recently that the church must feel like it's in exile. Like, okay, I think that the church must feel like it's in the wilderness where you wonder where God is. Where even when you have the benefit of memory to remember the last time you saw God, Today's problems are so tough and so difficult and so frightening. Today, we wonder where God is. I need to be honest with you. Today's story um, is not a great one. In fact, there are some stories in Scripture that we tell as if they are good and positive stories that Scripture intends for us to hear as negative stories. This is one of those. This is one of those. This story is kept and recorded in Scripture, not to tell us what to do, but to tell us what to avoid at all costs, and to give us some idea of what happens when we don't avoid the quarreling and the testing, the quarreling and the testing. So, this is what it says. This is the last verse of the short text that I'll be preaching today. This is the last verse. We're going to start with this, and then we're going to circle back to the front. He, Moses, called this place Masa and Meribah. Because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, 
Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? And just so we're clear, Masa and Meribah mean testing and quarreling. Not so much between the people, the quarreling. It, it, this is what happens when we test God and when we quarrel with God. Testing God, uh, I think, happens more often than what we would like to believe. In small, seemingly insignificant ways, but also in larger, much more significant ways. Look, when, when you drive around without a seatbelt and you go, ah, God, will, God will protect me. <laughs> That's testing God. And, and I think I can say with scriptural authority behind me, listen to me, if that's kind of what you do and how you do it, I can drive without a seatbelt because God will take care of me. God does not like that. And you should not rest easy in that seat, believing that somehow that God is obligated. It happens in, in big ways too, though. It happens in big ways too when we say, okay, I'm about to decide whether or not God is real. And we say, if my business doesn't come back this month, God is dead. God maybe has never existed. Hear me when I say God's mind and heart are made up where you're concerned, where I'm concerned, where we're concerned. That said, God is not obligated to salvage your business. Friends, what are we going to say to David Logan, to Emily Euler, and Jeff Logan? having just lost Sally. Here's a really dangerous thing. If somehow you test God and it sounds something like this, well, if I have enough faith, then God will, because kind of what you're saying is, when I have enough faith, I am gonna make God, and then when the thing doesn't happen, we have this awful tendency to look around and say, must not have had enough faith. You need to do some, like, some faith ups to, to build your God's mind about us all, each of us and all of us, is made up. And it doesn't obligate God to anything. I'm not saying at all that God is not somehow involved, even in the detail of life, because, friends, when I say to you God's mind about us is made up and the news is good, I believe, I believe, and will say right out loud, yeah, absolutely, I believe that God is involved in the detail of life. I also believe that God will not be coerced by you or by me or anybody else. I, let, me, let me take you off the hook. I do not expect many amens today. <laughs> this is tough stuff. And this is insider sermonizing today. I don't know that it's the people outside who have never heard of this God who need to hear this. It's the insiders who sometimes believe that by virtue of their worship, they're getting God to do something or feel something or think something that God would not have otherwise done, felt, or thought. That is not true. Hear me. You need to be here in church. You need to participate every time we can, however we do, in communion. You need to do that. You need to give to your church. You need to serve. 
You need to serve. You need to do all of these Christian things. You need to pray, and you need to read scripture. But none of it changes God's mind, and none of it motivates God to finally do the thing. All of it shapes you so that you can see and hear the one that formerly you could not see or hear. And to a deeper and deeper and deeper extent, are you saying that our prayers don't do anything? Not at all, not at all. I'm saying God's God and you're not. And as strange as it may sound, we struggle to keep those two straight sometimes. You ever felt like God was not doing what you were telling God to do? God, I told you when to show up and how to show up and what to do when you show up, and you didn't do it. If you haven't yet felt like, man, God is not doing what I told God to do, you need to do that soon. You need to feel that soon because your soul is at risk. Super quiet, it's okay. So, the people camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. <laughs> and so the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us some water to drink. I don't care that we're in the desert. Do one of your trick things. We need water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why is it that you are testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, really, did you really just bring us all out here to die in the desert? This, haven't we heard this from them before? I mean, truth be known, haven't we heard this from ourselves before? Really, God? Is this why you brought me this far? Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us? And what's worse, to kill our children and even our cows? <laughs> did you bring us out here to kill our cows? I'm just gonna read these next three verses, but I want you to know as I read them that as miraculous as this is, as this is the verses I'm about to read you are not the point of the passage. I mean, hear this. This is great. So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to kill me, to stone me, to execute me. The Lord said to Moses, go on ahead of the people. Take some of the elders with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. By the way, remember this? He struck the Nile and he made that water in the Nile undrinkable. Remember that? Take that same staff that people will recognize that good things happen when the staff, or, or at least powerful things happen when the staff is unsheathed somehow. And go. Verse 6. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, of all things, and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. In Hebrew literature, I think I can say in Hebrew thought, what comes last is what you're supposed to latch on to. That's not what comes last. The water from the rock is not what comes last. Here's what comes last. He called the place Masa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? 
That's what you hang on to. And friends, this is a scathing indictment of the people of Israel. And anyone like the people of Israel, like me. Don't look at me like that. Like, it's like you too. I mean, how often do we reduce God to whether or not we have what we need? Sometimes we reduce God to whether or not we have what we want. One of my favorites says it like this. The only evidence of Yahweh's presence that Israel will accept at this point is concrete action that saves. Thus, Israel collapses God's promise into its own well-being and refuses to allow Yahweh any life apart from Israel's well-being. If God exists, God exists for me. If God does not exist for me, God does not exist. I need to tell you, I need to tell you that this passage is for the rest of the Old Testament and on into the New Testament, a cautionary tale. Something else, Brueggemann writes, these memories haunt later Israel. The names become a type for testing God. You shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Massah, as it says in Deuteronomy 6.16, but also in several Psalms. And this from Numbers 14, 22, we learn that the people had tested God 10 times, severely testing the divine patience, and in addition, it is at this place that it went ill with Moses on their account, according to Psalm 106, Numbers 20, Deuteronomy 32. Something changed, something broke where the connection between God and Israel were concerned, and God didn't break it. God didn't break it. Another voice that I'm leaning on heavily for this series says this. Testing has to do with seeking a way in which God can be coerced to act or show God's self. It is to set God up to try to force God's hand in order thereby to determine concretely whether God is really present or not. He continues to say, such attitudes in setting up God for a test and holding God's uh, hostage determine just how God is to show the divine power. It places God in the role of servant at the beck and call of one in any difficulty. And besides violating the godness of God, it endangers the understanding of faith. It leads to such attitudes as, we've already said this, God did not heal or protect you because you did not have enough faith. If you had, God would have acted. What we're saying today is that those stories about the temptations of Christ in the New Testament are perhaps more powerful and more important than we know, than we have appreciated up to this point. Like the people of God, the person of God, the Christ, also faced hunger, thirst, danger, and temptation. And what we hear from and see in Jesus in the temptation narratives is to be understood as a correction to what happened back in the Old Testament wilderness. In Matthew 4, the devil took Jesus to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. Remember this? 
the highest point of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, let's see. Let's see if God shows up. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. By the way, it's all there. It's all in Scripture. To which Jesus responded, again, it is written, do not put your Lord, your God, to the test. Got it, John, got it. (laughs) Don't put God to the test. Got it. You know what? That doesn't solve the fact that I am in pain. This doesn't solve the fact that the world seems to be in danger. This doesn't solve the fact that the, that the nation seems to be fracturing. This doesn't solve the fact that we have trouble in our state and in our city. This doesn't solve that my marriage is coming apart at the seams. This doesn't solve the fact that my heart will never be the same after the death of this one. This doesn't solve my upcoming bankruptcy issues. None of this, none of this, that I'm not supposed to test God, none of this actually helps. What do you have for me today, John? I have something for you today, church. I do. I said this, uh, oh, it's been a little bit more than a year ago. Of the top 100 praise and worship songs in 2019, exactly zero of them had to do with lament. Lament. None, none of them had to do with lament. Let me, let me, here is, there are a lot of different ways to define or describe the biblical understanding of lament. Here, here is my way, and I've got a little video of somebody who I think captures it pretty well, but here, here's what I would say. When we can be honest to God, with God about how badly it hurts. Did you know that it's okay to pray with gritted teeth? Did you know that it's okay to voice yourself to God with your fists clenched? Did you know that it's okay to be honest with God? Wow, mood lighting, hang in there. (laughs) It's okay to be honest with God, even if what you say, someone in your head tells you, you can't say that, it's disrespectful. (laughs) Did you know that God can survive your disrespect. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go out and be wantonly disrespectful. What I'm saying to you is, in your honesty, God is somehow not threatened. Let me say that again. And if you're gonna save an amen for one statement, here's the one, you ready? Here, I'm gonna say it again. You can be honest with God, God is not threatened. What I'm saying is, no, it's not a good thing to test God it is a good thing to cry out to God. So lament, kind of at its simplest form, is just crying out to God, typically in the form of a prayer, but sometimes it's just in the form of tears, sometimes it's a song, sometimes it's a piece of art, a poem. It's really just crying out to God. It's often impolite. Um, it's sometimes bitter, angry, all of your stuff, you're just pouring out to God before him. But part of what it means to be in a covenantal relationship with God is that we can express the full gamut of our emotions to him without fear. 
um, knowing that our cries and our bitterness and our anger aren't falling on deaf ears. They're falling on the ears of a loving, listening God who is actually with us in our pain. So I think sometimes lament just invites us into deeper intimacy with our Father. So we're not having to pretend like everything's okay. We're not having to rush through the pain and like get to the solution. But we're actually pouring ourselves out to God and moving into a deeper relationship with him through it. Lament's counterintuitive, right, especially in the West, because we want to like wrap up our pain in a pretty little bow and, and package it and, and preach a good sermon on it or something. But Lament kind of asks us to be still. And even if the questions aren't answered, even if we don't move to a place of hope, Lament says, God, I will trust you no matter what. Lament is about worshiping God you know, not for God and blessings, not for God and benefits, but God for God's sake alone. Lament kind of says, even if this doesn't go well with me, Jesus, you are still enough, and I will worship you. I will trust you, not my will, but your will. So lament's an act of surrendering, lament's an act of trust, and lament, again, is just an invitation to go deeper than we've ever gone before with our Father. Now, I don't know very much about Aubrey Sampson, and I don't know very much about this book, but I think she's dead on. And maybe, instead of testing, maybe we need to get more and more and more comfortable with lament. With complaint. With (laughs) the airing of grievances, (laughs) even if I'm airing them to God. But John, what does that do? If I just voice all of my complaints to God, what does that do? Well, a couple of things, and they're both pretty good. It connects you in conversation and communication with your God. That's never gonna be a bad thing. For you to communicate with God honestly. I think this communication is a two-way street, and and perhaps it's possible that the more honest you are with God, the more likely you are to be able to see God where you couldn't see God before. Here's the other thing it does that I think is also pretty good. It puts you right in lockstep with Jesus, who seems to have understood the power of lament. Is this scene familiar to you? Christ on the cross, three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, that Aramaic phrase, I don't want to try it. But when translated, it's this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said that at God. M- maybe, maybe you should say it like this. Perhaps, perhaps it would have been just breathtaking to have been at that place and to hear that Jesus didn't so much, he was dying, didn't so much shout this at God, But perhaps what Jesus did was he, maybe he sang this at God. Because you may not recognize it, but that's the first line of what perhaps is the most famous lament song captured in Scripture. Jesus lamented his situation before God in what may have been in that moment his last act of worship before his death. Psalm 22 starts like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Perhaps there was a tune to it. Perhaps there was a rhythm to it and a cadence to it. And what we have from the Son of God, what we have from the Christ, what we have from Jesus, Mary's Son, is the capacity in this moment of great anguish and pain to sing his complaint to God, to reference his complaint to God. Not to say, not to say, God, if you're real, you'll be here for me now. That's what the other criminals said, remember? Listen, if you really are who you say you are, just tell all these angels to come and get us down from here for heaven's sake. Jesus understood God to be bigger, boy, this is tough, than Golgotha. And so, whereas many people, perhaps me, maybe you, would have in that moment said, God, if you're real, you'll show up right now. Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? I want to read you a few more verses from Psalm 22 because in in using that first verse, Jesus intends all of the verses. Verse two says, my God, I cry by day and you do not answer by night and find no rest. If you keep reading through chapter 22 or Psalm 22, you'll see some pretty graphic portrayals of the anguish that the singer is in, all the way down to, look at me, you can count my bones. The people mock me. Even something as eerily specific as, they've now taken my clothes and they are casting lots for them. And then toward the end, Verse 24, God does not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. God does not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. Verse 29, to him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him, says the singer, says Jesus on the cross. Verse 30, posterity will serve him, future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. Sometimes all we have is hope. It's not a pie in the sky sort of Pollyanna kind of hope, like, oh, it'll all be fine. I can just ignore the cancer. I can just ignore the bankruptcy. I can just ignore the fracture. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the kind of hope that the people of Israel could have had if they had just looked in their rearview mirrors a little bit to still see the churning waters of the Red Sea. To see somewhere on the horizon the cityscape there in Egypt. Sometimes all we've got is hope. And that hope is not rooted in somehow this blind positivity. It is rooted in the activity and the character and the nature of God. I'm looking into the faces of some of you that I know have experienced loss even recently, who still feel it with your every breath and every step. 
I am looking into the faces of some of you who are in the midst of your anguish. Your home is coming apart. Your job, your livelihood is drying up. What do you have for me today, John? Here's what I have for you. The God of the Exodus is still God and is still sensitive to the cries of his people. The God of Passover still is fiercely loyal to us, to you. Are you guaranteeing me? No, I'm not guaranteeing you anything, except, except, God hears you and is with you. Tamara, go ahead and come on up. We're going to sing this song that's become something of a refrain. Lord, I need you. And as you know, I always lead us through a few words of uh, confessional sorts of praying before handing it over to Jason. But I'm going to incorporate that into that same time frame today. I'm going to incorporate some time for us to pray prayers of lament. And you don't have to be good at this. You just have to be honest. And you need to say, here's what hurts and here's why. And it's okay to throw in there, where are you, God? All of that fits. I invite you to stand with me. And perhaps this song can serve as the beginning of our prayer today.
take a posture of prayer that's most comfortable for you. Some of you may want to sit where you are. Feel free to use that, that pew as an altar. If you'd like to turn around and kneel, that is also fine. If you would like to remain standing, all of that fits. I'm going to walk us through a few moments of prayer best characterized by this term lament. And then also some confession. And then I'm going to hand it over to Jason. So, Heavenly Father, as we begin, remind us that you welcome us in all of our raw desperation. Remind us that you welcome us in all of our raw frustration, in our despair. That you welcome us, that you have made space for us. Remind us, Lord, right now just how massive you are big enough to handle our words of worry, our words of complaint, perhaps our words of rage, deep anxiety. And now, church, with that as our backdrop, I want to encourage you to speak a transparent heart to the God that can handle it. Ready, go. bigger than you think. Perhaps God is bigger than you've been told. God will be just fine. And now for prayers of confession because perhaps there are some people in the room including your pastor who have at times been known to test God. to confess the capacity that we have to test God, to tell God, here's how I want you to show up, what I want you to do. (laughs) Confess now your claim to God's throne.
all receive these words as I transition to Jason. Hear these words. May the Almighty God have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life.